Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. A series of honest conversations about opportunities, challenges, and joy in ministry today. I'm Adam Mixon, content curator. I'm Adam Borneman, program director. I'm Jennifer Maxell, program curator. And I'm Mark Ramsey, executive director of the Ministry Collaborative. A project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation, the Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations. Committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Every day, we are inspired by ministry leaders from across the country who are exploring possibilities. Learning from broad perspectives. Taking risks. And who are eager to join candid discussions that generate disruptive creativity. This is Mark Ramsey, and I have the privilege today of talking to uh, Jamon Taylor, who's rector of St. Ambrose Episcopal Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. One of the most important and joyful things that's happened to me in the last five or six years is getting to know Jamon. Uh, we are both on a team uh, funded by the Louisville Institute on looking at race and theological practices. Uh, Jamon, hello. Hello, Mark. Uh, and I echo what you, you said. Uh, certainly been a joy over these past six plus years getting to know you and our whole team better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if there is a uh, typical path to ministry. You do not do not have a typical path to ministry. Just give us a little background, how you ended up where you are. I like to say I went from race car driver to priest. So most, if not all, of my pre-seminary college training was in mechanical engineering. I have an undergrad and ME from NC State, a graduate in mechanical engineering from Stanford University, concentrating in robotics and vehicle design. And so I took both of my ME degrees and went to Michelin Tire Company in Greenville, South Carolina, where in the morning I would sit down at a laptop and basically play video games, run computer simulations of cars, doing different maneuvers on a racetrack, and then after lunch, I would put on a full racing suit with helmet and get in a Porsche and redo those same maneuvers. Our goal was to decrease testing. Uh, at that time, it took about eight to 10 iterations to move from concept to reality, which meant you had to build demo tires eight times and test them eight to 10 times. But we were trying to cut that down to three iterations. You had your benchmark, you'd simulate yeah. You do your next level, and then finally, uh, you'd have the end result. And so I, I love my job. Always been a car guy. Spent a little bit of time in France because Michelin is still a French tire company. And it was in the context of working for Michelin that what I say is that the spirit spoke through the community. Um, I had a call to ministry uh, ever since I was maybe seven years old, but never paid attention in any real way. And the call of the external community helped me to pay attention to God's internal call. So I resigned and went to seminary in New York City and then got ordained in ministry in Dallas, Texas, and have been in Raleigh, North Carolina for the past eight years. That's great. I can think of no better preparation for ministry than what you just described. So You know, it, act, it, it is because, uh, you know, being an engineer, they teach you how to think. Yeah. And there are a lot of uh, challenges in ministry, as we know. Plus, it's been very helpful over the past three years as we've launched this capital campaign. When I sit down across from engineers and contractors and they find it, I speak the same language. Uh, tell us a little bit about St. Ambrose. You said you've been there for eight years. So St. Ambrose was founded 1868 at the end of the Civil War in conjunction with St. Augustine's University, the historically black Episcopal college, founded to educate those recently emancipated enslaved people. And we were founded at the 
same time for spiritual formation. So our genesis comes out of the devastation of the Civil War. So we are a historically black Episcopal church and still remain that to this day, probably being 98% black American. And one of the first markers of our church is that by 1900, we had to physically pick up our church and move. When we read the history uh, during that time, it said that the greatest thing St. Ambrose did within its less than 40 years of history is to move the church physically closer to the people. The reason that happened is the neighborhood in which we lived changed or the church uh, stood changed. It was the community where freed black people lived during slavery, Smoky Hollow, but then a mill popped up and it changed from an all black community to a working class white community. That also coincided with a very conservative Democratic Party being elected to our General Assembly and a de facto race line came into the city. And so our church happened to be in the white part of town. So we physically picked up the church, put it on rollers and rolled it a mile and a half south to the black side of town. It took seven months. And what we did is we physically moved the church structure closer to black people. And we stayed in that location uh, for about 65 years until the building was about 100 years old. And during that time, the city of Raleigh zoned the first neighborhood for black people to live during segregation, 1957. And so the church leaders at that, that time decided again to move the church building physically closer to black people. We were not able to move our historic structure. We actually built a new church in a neighborhood called Rochester Heights. The tragedy is that the neighborhood that the city of Raleigh zoned uh, was a place where the city dumped raw sewage for 80 years and garbage for about 50 years. And Actually, not too long ago, in a recent article, we found that the federal building built in 1969 to this day continues to dump sewage into the creek that runs by St. Ambrose. So whereas I used to say the city of Raleigh dumped sewage for 80 years, now it's more like 120 years because that continues today. So it's where the city of Raleigh dumped raw sewage into a wetland. And a wetland is an, a marvel of nature that ideally acts like a bathtub. All of this storm water comes in because it's a low-lying area and because of the land and dirt, water is filtered and actually clean. But because so much neglect had happened, it acted like a bathtub that's clogged. And a clogged bathtub overflows. And the equivalent is that the neighborhood flooded and it still continues to flood today. Many of the houses um, in the neighborhood that used to stand no longer stand. And so in the late 1990s, we formed a coalition that exists today, Partners for Environmental Justice, where we called the city to task and help clean up the wetland. Part of the, the challenge today is that no longer uh, is flooding necessarily caused by environmental stressors, but what I call non-environmental stressors, which is, quote unquote, progress. All of the building, uh, the new construction happening in the northern part of the city, all of that stormwater comes running by St. Ambrose. Mm -hmm. And if nothing is done, my prediction is within a decade, the church will be underwater. There is so much in that we could spend hours just parsing all that through the lenses of ministry, race, history. But th thanks for 
for sharing that. We record these podcasts a little bit in advance, so given the fast-moving events, I'm always hesitant to ask any real-time question, knowing that it'll be obsolete in a week with something else monumental happening. However, we know that ministry right now with these multiple crises and events is putting a lot of pressure on churches and church leaders to discern the way forward that takes everything into account. Jamon, what, what do you find that you're holding on to and what are you finding you're letting go of uh, in ministry in this season? I find St. Ambrose living into its history. I've mentioned that two times we have moved the church closer to the people. So we have abandoned our location uh, at least twice, uh, some would argue three times in our history. And I would say the same is, is happening now. When I talk to church leaders, there really is not a rush to get back to the physical building. When I speak to other ministry leaders in our diocese and in other traditions, there seems to be almost a heightened awareness or desire to return to the physical location. I'm not seeing that. And what has happened and continues to happen is we have pivoted. So in mid-May, we gave away 12,000 pounds of food to 500 people who drove up in cars. We placed the food in the trunk. Since that time, uh, once a week, we deliver three to 4,000 pounds of food to 100 homebound people in Southeast Raleigh. And Southeast Raleigh is considered a food desert. When we look at the government statistics on food insecurity, the scale goes from one to 10. St. Ambrose's neighborhood scores 21 using that metric. So we more than break the scale. And so what, what I'm seeing is my community is meeting food and security, not concentrating on space and place, but concentrating on people. And so we've let our buildings go. Not that the building is in disrepair or is being torn down, but we see the need being outside. And so whereas in the past, the church community physically moved closer to the people, what I find in the midst of COVID-19 is that the church community is moving closer to the people, uh, meeting the need of food insecurity. Uh, we're, we're also working with some community organizing groups to help uh, address food insecurity and, and make sure that no one goes hungry, which is the dream of God. Yeah, thank you. We've been doing some webinars, and on one of the recent webinars, we got a question from somebody who was attending it. What is the relationship between proclamation and protest, or what's the relationship between worship and protest? Ideally, proclamation is protest. When you look at Jesus and he proclaimed good news, uh, he was protesting. Good news is good news because it's contrary to the world as it exists. And so if we are being followers of Jesus Christ and true to the gospel, then whenever we proclaim, it should be protest. And so part of protest, just to speak from St. Ambrose's standpoint, was in the context of worship. I mentioned these 12,000 pounds of food we uh, delivered to about 500 people. We started with the truck delivering food on pallets. Uh, we did a, a short service of morning prayer from the Episcopal prayer book. I had Ethiopian incense that we sensed the food. I had the Paschal candle there because we were still in the season of Easter. So the Paschal candle was shining. And it really hit home when one of my parishioners said, you know what, we had communion today. Yeah. We got together, 
we blessed bread, we broke it, and we distributed it. And about 500 were fed with 12,000 pounds of food. And so that's worship is protest, because I said on the, the government scale, we rank 20 slash 21 out of a scale of 10. We break the scale. So to offer food in that context is to protest and even to go deeper, to organize people to affect change is to turn the food and security system upside down. So if there is not protest, I wonder if there is good news. And if there is no good news, there is not gospel. Thanks for that, Jamon. Yeah, one of the things we've been saying as we've been working with our network of pastors and congregations is this is a time like no other to remember that God loves the world more than God loves the church. We are to give ourselves away to get as close as we can to that and follow that wherever that leads. Another friend of mine, uh, she just wrote a, a paper on the eccentricity of Christian hope. And in just talking about it, she says, you know, nothing about Christian hope is normal. Mm-hmm. Where, where are you finding hope right now? I'm finding hope in these anecdotal stories. When we first moved to online worship because our bishop suspended in-person worship, I had one 90-year-old parishioner tell me that she was able to find a worship service on her smartphone. She received a call from another parishioner, daughter-like person, who is 60 years old, saying that she could not get the live stream. And so what the 90-year-old did was said, I will call you back on my landline. And she placed her cell phone by the speaker of her landline, and the 60-year-old parishioner was able to worship that Sunday. (laughs) I mean, that struck me in so many ways. One, because you think it would be reversed, a 60-year-old helping a 90-year-old. And then it got me thinking, it's a segment of St. Ambrose who are not able to worship because they don't have technology. And so the next Sunday, we expanded our offering via phone call. And now on Sunday morning, we have sometimes 30 to 40 people calling in via phone. That was a blind spot uh, I would not have seen if this woman had not told the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, another story I, I mentioned that we are doing food insecurity by delivering food. For the past eight years, I've been preaching about work. Our mission prayer at St. Ambrose is worship, wisdom, work. Worship of God, wisdom from God, work alongside God. And I have parishioners who are going door to door as evangelists, not saying here's a tract with the four principles of of salvation, but rather saying, do you want food? Not do you need food? Do you have food? Do you want food? And if the person says yes, we bring them food. And this came from them. I did not have to prod them or suggest it. It came directly from them. And so I'm finding hope in all of those stories. I look at my parishioners who are diving deeper into spirituality. They're doing daily prayer. They are making connections to the world that I did not see them making before in one Bible study. One parishioner said, you know, the the streets and buildings are burning because of of racial unrest. Fires are being started. Today is Pentecost Sunday. To me, this is no coincidence. How do we read the fire of the Holy Spirit through the fire of burning buildings? I mean, theologians talk in these ways, and we have, I see people in my pews talking that way. So I I just get so excited and have so much hope 
and really feel good about these signs of hope, the, these seeds of hope that are really growing. Yeah, that, that's great. That, that's a better description of Pentecost than most I have read or heard. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, you, you've already indicated the first part of this, but a three-part question. In these times with both uh, COVID-19 and this renewed striving for racial justice and equity, what are you learning? What are you worried about? And what are you surprised by? I'm worried that we don't capture the moment and that people are tone deaf and then five years from now there is no progress. One of the things I hope is that we have been given a view into what is possible. For years, as it relates to racial reconciliation, white supremacy, the legacy of white supremacy, we've been told that there simply are not enough resources. There's not enough for health care. There's not enough for school. Uh, there's not enough for food. And yet our governing bodies within a week passed trillions of dollars as if it were nothing. And so to me, that's a seed of hope. And we need to bring that into the new normal because that is a sign of what's possible when people really care. And so my hope moving forward is that once we move into whatever new normal, because we will not go back, whatever new normal, that we will take the learnings of the current situation, particularly what I call the signs of resurrection and hope, and allow them to grow and nourish in a new reality and work for a place where the neighborhood around St. Ambrose is a one on the scale which means there's food for everyone and a place where 12 and a half million kids do not go hungry in my county and a place where justice and the legacy of white supremacy is no more. Uh, what are you surprised by? Given a lot that's happened with the unrest, I'm surprised by the diversity of the community, the people gathered. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised by actions that corporations and even governments have taken People have been talking about fair and just policing for decades, uh, and we see some small movement toward that. So I'm, I'm surprised by these things, and I just hope that uh, the rate in which these happen increase. Yeah. And, and that seems to me to be something that falls at least somewhat on the Christian community to sustain it and keep it going. What's a scripture text that is being helpful to you right now? What can separate us from the love of God? Can COVID-19, can corona, can white supremacy, can racial unrest, can burning buildings? No. Through these things, we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. So it's really that, that last phrase, through Jesus Christ who loved us and loves us. Uh, that is what sustains me. That's where I'm finding hope. And to me, that's the scripture that is really given life for me now. Jamon, you are, for me, an inspiration and an example. I think the way forward for faith communities is to go deep and stay there and nourish a theological imagination for what God is already doing. I see you doing that every single day in your ministry. And what you've said to us about your community bears that fruit. So thank you both for what you're doing, but also for the example you are setting and inspirational. And I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. Our producer is Marthame Sanders. To find out more about us and our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org. 